Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we will introduce the topic of the Gilded Age. We will discuss the early goings-on of big businesses in the United States and introduce some of the key players, or as we call them, captains of industry. Cornelius Vanderbilt and the shipping empire, Andrew Carnegie and Steele, vertical integration, and, by the way, was a huge influence on one of my favorite authors, Napoleon Hill. But before we go to Gene, a quick mention of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you in part by Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. Go see our friends at Keen Insights for all of your internet marketing needs. Next, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Go see our friends over at Elite bookedits.com for all of your book editing needs, both fiction and nonfiction. Lastly, a little plug for myself, Immortals Revelations, now available for sale in Amazon and Kindle, as well as the naughty list. Immortals Revelations is about two immortals, vampires, but they, they don't like that term, who decide they want to reveal themselves to the world, start filming a documentary, and then things start going wrong. And The Naughty List is a fun little Christmas romantic comedy about two individuals who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off of The Naughty List, and then Santa kind of sets them on a path to meet, and it's a, a little fun romantic comedy. I hope you check it out. Thank you. Now, on to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. Okay, so today's podcast is going to be on the Gilded Age and the rise of big business. So, you know, I was I was telling Jim earlier, this is these are gonna be his people. He's gonna like this one. This is he's gonna shine this this podcast. So if you've listened to us before, you may hear him a little bit more today than we typically do. So the term Gilded Age, it was coined by Mark Twain, and it was used to describe the United States from the post-Civil War era to the end of the 19th century or the end of the 1800s, if you're not sure what the 19th century means. In 1870, Mark Twain wrote the following, what is the chief end of man to get rich? In what way? Dishonestly, if we can, honestly, if we must. Now, what do you think about that quote? Do you think that people would rather or or sooner choose to get rich dishonestly as opposed to honestly? I thought this was a U.S. history podcast and we're getting into my philosophy, but okay. I have to think that most people, their end might not be the chief end of man, might not be to get rich, but perhaps to improve, to get better, to improve their lot in life, whether that is financially through their own their own self-development through whatever it is that's going to make them feel fulfilled and as far as honestly if we must i have to think that because of the rules of society most people aren't going to lie cheat and steal to get what they want i think those rules are there to prevent that but i also think that there are some people that probably would and do and it probably doesn't happen as often because of the rules in society but yet it's there, it, you know, the, the, the shortest path, right? So I think there's a lot of that that people have innately within them, but they, they choose not to get in trouble. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. But I, I'm, I just want to jump on the fact that you said there are laws or rules in place. There are laws and rules in place today. But during the Gilded Age, things that are now illegal for businesses to do were perfectly legal for them to do. And we're going to get into that. When it comes to understanding what the term gilded means, I always try to hammer 
home to my students the meaning using this analogy. If you use jewelry, for example, if you show a fake piece of jewelry as opposed to maybe an actual gold bracelet, from far away, what are they going to notice? What happens when they inspect it a little bit more closely? Now, what do you realize? This notion that on the surface, things appeared to be beautiful, but under that cheap layer of gold-colored paint, what was really lurking was massive amounts of corruption. In the United States, you have unprecedented growth in regards to industrialization and technological advances. And then you have all of these horrible social and economic conditions within American society. You have a few thousand families within the country that have an obscene amount of wealth and are living lives like those of European aristocrats of bygone eras, while at the same time, you have this overwhelming majority of people in the United States who are really just living in squalor. You have most immigrant families who are living in tenements. A tenement was, you know, could typically be described as a three-room apartment where families in many cases were forced to take in borders in order to help pay for rent. So you were talking about, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you were talking about having these folks who, you know, a, a small number of people have a majority of the wealth versus having, um, you know, people that are poor and living in the tenements and everything else. That still exists today. Still exists today, 100%. You have, you have the big wealthy billionaires. Maybe there's a little bit more of a disparity. I mean, that, that's obscene amount of money. But I guess it's all to scale, right? So if the Vanderbilts or, you know, whoever we're going to end up talking about with the railroads and, you know, the development of the country, you're going to have the people who created jobs, who built these empires off of other people, and they have through the work of off of the work of other people, but getting things done through these people because they couldn't possibly do it themselves. You have the same thing in today's world. You have you have people with a lot of money and then you have the working class. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, so you're talking about, you know, the notion of the 1%, right? And the 99. So yes, you have people who have an obscene amount of wealth and you have this working class today. But we're talking about a time where you have children who are working in sweatshops. There are children who are working in sweatshops across the world, but it's not necessarily happening in the United States on a regular basis. But yes, you're right that today, a lot of what we're talking about today still exists. And we're going to get into that more in the, you know, towards the end of the podcast. So in these tenements, you have these three room apartments, there are borders being brought in to help pay for the rent. All the while, not only is the man working or the husband working, but your wife is working and your children, sometimes even as young as five are all working to try to pay the bills. So it's very much a tale of two different Americas. And Jacob Reese hit the nail on the head in his progressive era novel, How the Other Half Lives, showcasing how other people were living. The topic, or this topic, I should say, it was always one of my favorites to teach. It always led to a really lively debate over whether individuals like Andrew Carnegie, and that's how you pronounce his name, Carnegie, he was a Scottish immigrant, John D. Rockefeller, Cornelius Vanderbilt, are these individuals, should we call them captains of industry, or are they robber barons? Now, to understand this time period, there are certain terms you just have to know. 
The first term I want to talk about is laissez-faire, and it's a French term meaning to let alone. And this was a policy of the government where they kept its hands off business and business practices. No government regulation when it comes to business. Let business do what business is going to do. The second term is social Darwinism. It was the theory of Darwin's natural selection, and it was used to explain the success of some groups and businesses and the failures of others. Andrew Carnegie supported the notion of social Darwinism, and he felt that society should do as little as possible to interfere with the process by which people succeed or fail. So according to this theory, businesses that failed, they just weren't good enough. And the businesses that succeeded, they had those innate abilities that helped them to succeed. Another term that's important to know for this topic is vertical integration. Now, this is when you have control over an industry from start to finish. So you control the raw materials all the way down to the finished product. And we'll talk more about this concept when we get into Andrew Carnegie a little bit later on. Then you have horizontal integration. And this is when you combine or consolidate a number of different companies within the same industry in order to make a monopoly. A corporation is a business owned by a number of different investors. And of course, stocks. Stocks are share in a business. You know, once upon a time, there was really this way of thinking that the only way to make money or the safe way to make money is only putting your money in the bank and letting it grow interest. And that was okay when, you know, at one time, maybe the interest rates at the bank were 7%, 8%, but now you're talking about the interest rate is like 0.1%, right? And so when you play the stock market, you have a chance to make more money, but you also have a chance to lose massive amounts of money. I want to make one quick comment there that you just said about playing the stock market versus you don't play. That's gambling, right? When you when you gamble, you're playing. If you are investing in a company, investing in stocks, you've done your research, you've done your due diligence, and now you're looking to to grow your money. It's an investment. It's not playing. Don't think you're playing the market. If you hear someone saying they're playing the market, that means that they are gambling. They're not doing their research. Yes, I'm glad you you kind of mentioned that because that's important to understand. If you are not using the stock market the right way, you can be pretty sure that you're going to lose your money. Within the United States during this time period, there are booming industries. We're talking steel, we're talking oil, railroads, the banking industry. And these industries saw some within them become extremely wealthy. And with that wealth came power. When most people hear the term monopoly, most people think of the board game. The game monopoly itself has really a very interesting history. Most people have played the game, but very few know the real story behind it. The real creator never made much money off of it. The original game was created by a woman named Elizabeth McGee during the early 1900s in order to teach about the evils of monopolies. It was originally called the landlord game, and it had two different ways to play, the monopolist version, which people know of today, and the anti-monopolist version, where each player made money every time a player bought a new property. The monopolist rules were a lot like the way monopoly is played today. The anti-monopolist rules, which is what the original creator hoped would catch on, 
never caught on. And after all, it's a lot more fun when you get to shake down family members and friends when they land on your property, right? Pay up, grandma, right? A monopoly is when an individual or a company controls an entire industry. And they control the entire industry to the extent that there is no competition. And that individual or company can control the price and the quality of service or product that exists on the market. Just like in the game, it suddenly stops being fun when one player begins to dominate the board. And a lot of times when you play the game Monopoly, the only way to survive is to kind of make deals with other people, but eventually that one strong player is gonna win. They're gonna take the game. And that's what happened with a lot of these businesses within those industries. In the mid-1800s, we begin to see a few individuals who were able to amass great personal wealth, the type of wealth that most people couldn't imagine having. And due to lack of government regulation, their actions, while morally questionable for sure, they were legal. And so this question becomes, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. I have to, I have to go back on that. When you have the rules of the road in business, right? Business and war, they always make that comparison. When you have the rules of the road, people are going to play by the rules. So if you want to change the result, you just change the rules. And I think that's kind of what happened with with some government regulation and the anti-monopolist practices that, that you're going to talk about for sure. But they were playing within the rules for that time. Or lack thereof. They were, there were no rules. You know, so they can say like, oh, well, they were coloring in the lines, but the lines didn't exist yet. Australia or prison rules, right? So whenever I teach this topic, I always use that 1870 quote from Mark Twain that we started off with. What is the chief end of man to get rich? In what way? Dishonestly, if we can, honestly, if we must. And we always discuss and we debate. Then I have my students play a little game. The class is divided into groups. Each group must nominate a student to be the CEO. The CEO is then given a sealed envelope with strict instructions not to open it until I tell them to do so. And we go over the rules. One, they must use the entire contents of the envelope. It's up to them to figure out how they intend to use each item. Rule number two, no physical harm can come to anyone in the room, especially me. I show them a whistle. I tell them, you don't want me to use this, right? And it's always shiny because I kept losing it year after year. But I would ask them, why do you think it's so shiny? And eventually somebody would say, because you never had to use it. And I would say, that's right. Rule three, each group has to get as many inflated balloons into the safe zone before the time is up. Each group has a different color of balloons to make it easy for me to keep track of who's done what. Now, when the time starts, it's a frenzy. Kids are blowing up balloons. Who can't tie them? Who can't get them to stick to the safe zone? that I've indicated they need to be in. But ultimately, one kid in one group realizes that the paper clip I included in the envelope is to pop another group's balloon before it gets to the safe zone. When that first balloon pops, all eyes are on me to see my reaction. I do and say nothing. It's a frenzy. At this point, there are a handful of students who are pleading with me to do something. I throw my hands up as if to say, I have no control over this situation. It becomes even more of a frenzy. Their eyes are still on me. I bring the whistle to my lips. I never have to use it. There is silence. I calm them down because you best believe that tempers are flaring. And I ask the select few who are upset why they are upset. 
and we discuss and we debate. And I asked the kids who realized what the proper use of the paperclip was, why they did what they did. And I revert back to the Mark Twain quote, what is the chief end of man to get rich? In what way? Dishonestly, if we can, honestly, if we must. And I asked the kids, well, what role did I play in the game? And after a few seconds, the kids realized that I was the government, hands off, laissez-faire. And we all smile and wonder that is the wonder of my creativity, right? And before they realize what has happened, they already have their primary source documents on their desks, and they're all hyped up and ready to learn and debate about the titans of industry of the late 1800s. So let's get into who these titans were. So the first one we're going to talk about today is Cornelius Vanderbilt, and he was born of humble means on Staten Island, and he was born to farmers, and his first job was working with his father and ferrying their products, as well as people, into New York City, and he made money during the War of 1812, and over time, his wealth grew, and he's often described as a self-made man, and he was known as the Commodore. His involvement in the 1824 Supreme Court case of Ogden versus Gibbons is often not discussed, and the case allowed for competition in regards to transportation on U.S. waterways. Vanderbilt was the captain of Ogden's steamboat. Talk about being at the right place at the right time. After the court's decision, he is now able to compete with the very people who once owned the sole rights to transportation. And he became one of the first millionaires in the United States. And he, of course, makes the Vanderbilt name famous. He starts off creating his own ferrying service at the age of 16. He gets into steamboats, eventually steamships, and... Lastly, steam-powered locomotives. He goes on to own a vast network of railroad lines and companies into what was known as the New York Central Lines, and he built a depot that was known as Grand Central Depot. Years later, that depot would be rebuilt by someone else, not Cornelius Vanderbilt, and would become Grand Central Station, which still exists today. Next up is Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie is really a very interesting character. He's the son of poor Scottish immigrants. His father was at one point a very successful weaver, but with the new technology of the Industrial Revolution, his father's business was ruined as that as the production was moved from being done in people's homes to being done in factories by machines. It was up to his mother to figure out how to support the family, and she was probably the greatest influence on his life. There was no way to support their family in their small Scottish town. So like many Europeans, they emigrated to the United States, selling all of their belongings and even having to borrow 20 pounds in order to be able to afford the voyage. And they settle in Pittsburgh. And like many other immigrant children, Andrew Carnegie was unable to attend school and instead had to go to work. His first job was at a factory, stoking the fires for 12 hours a day. His next job was at a telegraph office. He was a messenger and he paid attention to every detail, especially the names of the important businessmen. He always made sure to say hello to them by name and that helped him to get noticed by the powerful men he aspired to be like. It got him to his next job as a private secretary to a wealthy railroad executive. Again, he watched, he learned. 
when the Civil War broke out, he was able to hire a substitute to fight for him. If you listen to our podcast on the Civil War, we talked about how it was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. During the war, the wooden railroad bridges were easily burned and destroyed, and he saw the potential in the steel business. He then built the plants needed to produce the new and improved railroad bridges. New inventions like the Bessemer converter allowed for the mass production of steel. He then opened a steel plant, which was named, which very smart in this, he named, didn't name it after himself. He named it after the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, who in turn bought steel from him. The company also got contracts for building the Brooklyn Bridge. His employees were expected to work 364 days a year. They were only off on the 4th of July. He was constantly figuring out ways to cut costs and increase profits. And this was not always done positively, right? So it's through cutting of wages, getting rid of any signs of unions or strikes with the use of spies among the men who worked for him blackballing strike leaders. That's when, you know, you made it very public as to who was, you know, forming these unions so they couldn't even get hired someplace else. And he always invested in new technologies. And this was something that he learned from his own father's demise, right? So when the Industrial Revolution came out, his his father, he didn't know what to do. He, he couldn't keep up with those machines. He was replaced. And he knew I can't be replaced. I need to keep up with these technologies. Otherwise, other people will. He was able to force his competitors out of business by spreading rumors about the quality of their steel and by lowering his prices in order to drive people out of business. His motto was watch the costs and the profits take care of themselves. It was a motto he learned from his mother. Andrew Carnegie used a process we refer to as vertical integration. He controlled the means of production from start to finish, from owning the iron ore mines to the plants that produce the steel, and then to the railroad lines that helped to bring the finished products where they needed to go. As he acquired more companies, he consolidated the plants under one name, and the company was called the Carnegie Steel Company. He eventually sold his business in 1901 to J.P. Morgan for $480 million. 1901 money, $480 million. J.P. Morgan then took that company and he created U.S. Steel. I want to add one little tidbit about Andrew Carnegie, as you as you call him. I know that you said it's the right way to say his name. But Andrew Carnegie had a very big influence over Napoleon Hill, who was one of my favorite authors. He went on to write Think and Grow Rich at almost the commission of Carnegie, who wanted him to go and interview all of these people and find out why were they were successful and what did they have in common. And then Think and Grow Rich, and now the whole Napoleon Hill Academy is definitely one of my favorite authors. If you haven't read Think and Grow Rich, take a read, and there are a lot of books related to it. Interesting. So, Andrew Carnegie felt that the system that created millionaires was necessary and it should not be altered. He felt that the wealthy should set an example of modest living. He felt that money should be put in a fund or a trust to be used for the benefit of the community. He looked down on direct charity as being evil. Direct charity is, let's say, you see somebody you know, living rough on the streets and, you know, you, you give them some money. That's direct charity. He felt as though money given through direct charity is often spent improperly. Instead, he felt that the wealthy should use money to build what he referred to as ladders, that 
poor or people of lower means could use to lift themselves up. Help those that will help themselves. We'll provide you with the tools. We're not going to give them to you. Here are the means for you to make a better life. Now go make a better life for yourself. And he goes on to say in his 1889 essay, which becomes known as the Gospel of Wealth, that men who die rich die disgraced, that it's better to give away your money while you are still alive. And I always use the example to my students, like let's say I came into a lot of money and I donated a ton of money to the school to build you know, a history pavilion. And at the doorway, there would be a very large, very flattering picture of myself. And, you know, over time, people would forget that this person taught at the school, but there would be my picture. And, you know, people would pass it and they would say, what a woman, right? Look at what she, what, look at what she did. But the stories, it would only be good things because I had left this, right? I had left this for posterity. And it also act like a smokescreen. So yes, aren't Andrew Carnegie, did some pretty shysty things in order to get to the top, but he's, you know, look at what I left. Look at what I did, right? Don't die rich. That was his motto. But he did practice what he preached. He gave away millions of dollars, an estimated $350 million. He created the Carnegie Corporation of New York in 1911, and it still exists today. It provides a number of different grants. Those millions of dollars helped to establish over 200 libraries. You know, Carnegie Hall in New York City, and there are other Carnegie Halls in other cities as well. Maybe you can make that an extra credit for people to figure out in what cities those halls are located. Oh, Carnegie Hall, yes, we can call it. But people don't call it Carnegie Hall. They call it Carnegie Hall, but his name was Carnegie. That's my two cents for today. He also financed the building of the World Court in The Hague in the Netherlands. The Carnegie Institute of Technology, which is now known as Carnegie Mellon University, he spent the last years of his life trying to ensure world peace and avoid the outbreak of a world war, which we all know he was unsuccessful in doing, and he knew he was unsuccessful in doing because it happened before he died, because World War I, or the Great War, as it was called at the time, would break out in 1914. Okay, this is probably a good place to take a break and continue the rest of this in our part two for the Gilded Age. Jeannie, always very educational. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.